0: You're listening to Build for Impact, brought to you by MarketScale, with your host, Daniel Hewitt. Hi, everyone. Welcome again to another episode of Build for Impact. Uh, I'm your host, Daniel Hewitt, And today, I want to introduce a colleague, friend, and super awesome contributor to the four pillars Uh, that we focus on in Build for Impact. Our guest today is Jennifer Berthelot-Jelovic. And I hope I pronounced that correctly, Jennifer.
1: I was going to say, I'm impressed. Great job.
0: (laughs) It must be my Canadian roots, you know, giving me that diversity on on pronunciation. But let's jump straight into it. Jennifer is super awesome, uh, hugely talented, hugely qualified, Uh, Jennifer became a lead fellow last year. I was one of the people who was standing there to give her a high five and hug as she walked off the stage. Um, Jennifer is also a faculty member at USGBC. She's a well AP, a member of well faculty in addition. She's done well lead living building challenge, net zero energy, and other projects all over the world. And is uh, her company uh, sustainable production? based in uh, in Los Angeles area, uh, in Southern California, is one of the most in-demand um, organizations doing this kind of work globally. So I know that Jennifer was involved in LEAD's um, schools program in a big way. Uh, she's, like I am, a serial volunteer to see these things continue to move forward. So, Jennifer, I'm going to start uh, our dialogue with uh, on the pillars with – Sustainability. And I know that you and I go all the way back to 302 Carson um, in Las Vegas, a, pro- a project that you did that we even had um, President Clinton at when it was uh, awarded its lead gold. So to, to set that premise and not set the bar overly high, your thoughts on, on sustainability, Jennifer? Wow, that's
1: a broad topic. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, you know, it's interesting because I feel like uh, when it comes to sustainability, I was just born um, knowing that it was the right thing to do, to take care of, you know, our, our planet for the people, uh, both now and for our generations to come. And so for me, when I look at sustainability, it's really a holistic term of sustainability. So I'm um, looking at it from an intersectional environmentalism approach, really looking at both the people and the planet, making sure that we're taking into account resiliency, um, so getting involved with sustainability early on, um, it's been really fun and exciting to watch the industry grow and evolve and uh, just to see all the new leaders that have come forward and how the next generation has really embraced sustainability. I have two kids who are 10 and 12, about to be 11 and 13. And I'm always in awe of just how much sustainability is really in their DNA as children and something they don't have to be taught. Um, so it's it's exciting to see how far we've come. And yet um, I'm in Los Angeles, California, and literally, you know, I'm surrounded by fires in our state. So uh, there's an urgency with which we really need to start paying attention to what's going on, you know, with our planet and the climate and the impact that that's having on the people.
0: I couldn't agree more. And I'm really glad that you shared the the fact about urgency and also sustainability in the DNA. You know, I had unbelievably huge uh, biophilia influences where I grew up. And, and you know, sustainability was sort of in, in, ingrained in us as kids because, you know, our, our parents were, were not wasteful people. They were looking to us to make sure that we shared in that responsibility in going right back to it all. So I'm really grateful that you tied both of those elements together. Jennifer, I know that you've contributed a lot to um, USGBC. You know, you were on the board for uh, USGBC Los Angeles, I think I'm the only member of USGBC Los Angeles that, that lives in Las <laughs> Vegas, but um, it, you know, it, it's still near and dear to my heart. You know, every place that I get a chance to collaborate in, I, you know, I take something back And and I know that you've done a lot of work around the planet. Um, and I'm not going to ask you where your favorite place was, mm-hmm. but you know, when we talk about sustainability, Give us your reflection on on what you've seen globally, because I know how eager um, people I've run into in Asia were when they found out that, oh my God, here's Daniel Huer, the lead fellow at Greenbuild uh, you know Asia. Um, we need to talk to him. And you know, I, I didn't think of myself as as uh, you know that important a person. They were very keen to find out, you know, to compare what they're doing uh to to kind of my background and knowledge and try to see where there was a crossover and what they could gain um and and what they could emulate so your thoughts on that aspect of sustainability
1: sure it's interesting because as you were mentioning you know growing up that way um my grandmother was super sustainable we just didn't call it that right she reused her her uh Christmas wrapping paper, her present wrapping paper. And we used to joke and I'm like, oh, great. I'm my grandma, I do that same thing, but I'm doing it because I get that it's sustainable and she probably was doing the same thing. We just didn't call it that. So I think sustainability really, um, some people don't even call it that, right? So um, I've lived in Nepal and Africa um, with the nonprofit build on building schools and, you know, going over there building schools, my first thought was, okay, great. We're going to put solar on these, right? We're going to do all these things. And then I realized these are just walls with a roof like they're lucky if they have electricity and one light bulb in them, um, you know, and there aren't, there's window holes, but not actually, you know, glazing or glass in them. Um, But then when you spend time with them and you live in their homes and, you know, the definition of home is very different, right? The, the definition of bathroom or a hole in the ground is very different. And so when you have to carry the water on your head, you know, from the lake or the, I mean, the river up to the school just to mix the concrete by hand, um, my head hurt for days. And these women are doing it with, five times as much water in their bucket with babies on their backs. And, um, so you really start to realize sustainability has very different definitions and meanings in different places. And, um, you know, being in Malawi, Africa, one of the things we talked about was as they fired all these bricks, they burnt down all the trees to fire the bricks. And now there were no trees out in these fields that had had trees for, you know, thousands of years. And so they were looking at how brick was not the way to build in the future because they couldn't, they didn't have enough um, trees, quite frankly, to fire the bricks. And so um, starting to look at, you know, how climate change and resources affects different people, it really is a varying scale, right? So then I go to um, Sydney right before the fires last year and was touring some of their buildings and meeting with some of their, you know, leading experts in sustainability and wellness And I was floored to see how far ahead of us, um, you know, I was in Sydney specifically, but how far ahead of us Australia was in general when it came to the sustainability of their buildings and to the health and wellness of the people in those buildings and spaces and and just in general. And so, um, you know, having traveled around the world quite a bit in in the last 10 to 15 years, um, I really do pay attention to these things, you know, and it's everything from the small who is using, you know, plastic straws versus everything to, you know, truly sustainable buildings and healthy buildings and reuse of water. And where's their energy coming from and how are they eating? Right. So how are they growing their food? Where are they sourcing it from? What's in it? Um, for me, I really look at that sustainability holistically. And so traveling, you really do see that, you um, you know, what we're doing in the U.S., we look at how can we as individuals um, have such a huge impact in sustainability if we reduce our, our usage of plastics and all of these things. But then you look at the reality is the corporations are the ones that are really creating most of this mess. So why are we not holding them accountable? And what's great is so many of those companies and organizations are taking the lead and doing really fantastic, innovative things to to benefit the environment. But that needs to d- be done at a much more um whether it's regulated or just whether they all start doing it, um, I think seeing these large corporations really um, take responsibility and offset the impact they have on the environment will be really important to to help us with the issues we have now that are only going to continue to get worse.
0: You know, the stuff that you touched down, I, I was jotting some quick notes. And, and really, you know, um, when we move into the next pillar, I'll I'll... I'll you know, tee it up, but it's basically from stuff you shared. Um, And that next pillar is resiliency. And, and really, you know, when, when I talk about resiliency, it's making sure that we do things in a manner that is responsible and equitable and, and, and really focusing on how do we, how do we care for the planet and how can we actually continue and what do we do to educate to stop bad habits you know so sustainability i really like how you you shared that it was really there's eras of sustainability you know before we formally titled it or recognized it as that we were just being responsible stuff that our grandparents and parents taught us if we were a practitioner um and then, you know, you, you look at expanding the boundaries and moving that along in a bigger way. You know, I you talked about the trees in Africa and, and, you know, when you burn that down to fire bricks, it wasn't the right move. And I really like the projects going on in Africa right now where they're doing reforestation and, uh, and stuff like that. And even the projects um, where they saw that, you know, the killing of elephants was a degradation to their um, – you know their their uh, flora in Africa as a continent, and in you know that that whole change happened. You know that whole his uh, holistical uh, benefit in in us finding multiplication and and uh, you know geographic means of of impact uh, by really improving stuff that we do for agriculture and in contributing to the planet. And then, you know, the last thing that you touched down on um, about Australia, they've got a, a starting a movement to ban um, the export of t- plastic trash. They want to try and move to a, a manner where they start seeing that stuff contribute to making, you know, uh dr- driveways, asphalt highways. Where can you turn that around? And, and you know, really – the, the fact that uh, and, and I've read some articles over the last couple of weeks about the petrochemical industry really you know touting the fact that plastics are recyclable and then we see that you know we're, we're in the single digit percentages of the amount of recycling that goes on with with that and it's it was really a vain in and, and nasty approach at, at doing something um, that, that's really damaged the planet. So, you know, with all of that stuff, my reflection on what you previously shared, you know, I I work uh, and I have worked in the the past in that resiliency world and looking at making sure that what we do um, stands up to what's thrown at it. It, You know, uh, um, so I'm going to give the floor back to you, Jennifer, and sorry for monologuing, uh, but, you know, I just wanted to share those things that are commonalities between us. So your thoughts on resiliency.
1: Sure. You know, I mean, I think resiliency is a really important topic right now. When we look at areas of our country, for instance, that continually get, you know, hit by hurricanes and are flooded and, um, need to be rebuilt. When we look at areas that keep catching on fire, at certain points, we need to ask, you know, if an island's going to be below sea level at a certain point do we keep rebuilding on that island or do we migrate those people and if we migrate them how do we keep their culture and everything that they had and you know however long they've been in in their their current Um, So I I think as we're looking at resiliency, we have to be looking ahead, knowing that we're going to have, you know, more tsunamis, more hurricanes, more fires, more tornadoes, all of these natural disasters, because we're not paying attention to our climate and and heating the scientists and, and what we know we need to do and so when i look at resiliency i see everything from you know the products we're using need to be resilient they need to be cradle to cradle we want to see that you know however they got onto this planet they're going to go back off of this planet in just a responsible way um and that doesn't mean recycling you know 90 to 95 percent of the time because i think that um while recycling may have had a really great intent when it was created and was this big, you know, movement, let's recycle, um, it really missed the mark on the reducing and reusing first, you know, and so, Um, people think, oh, well, I can use as much plastic as I want because it's just going to get recycled. And they don't realize that, you know, certain cities or certain municipalities don't even recycle to begin with. And then they don't even realize that most of that recycling doesn't get recycled and that some of that recycling is going to end up in the ocean on a boat. But now China's not buying it anyways. And so when you start getting into, you know, things like materials, I think our resiliency needs to be everything from, you know, the buildings where we live, work, and play. Are they resilient to withstand climate change and hot temperatures and cold temperatures and natural disasters? And are they healthy for the people inside? Um, You know, or are we slowly killing people and causing cancer because we're putting all of these toxic materials and chemicals inside of these really airtight buildings that are now energy efficient? And so um resiliency, I think, really touches on everything from our our planning, you know, our city planning or urban planning, what it looks like um, for families who might be out in the middle of nowhere, you know, when you get out into um, farming areas or the Midwest and, and people live very isolated. What do you do when there's natural disasters to help people that don't have access? And so resiliency, I think, is is definitely at the forefront um, as we deal with, you know, so many different things, even, you know, rolling blackouts. Resiliency, to me, is having renewable energy. So when the system goes down, there's still a way to make sure people have access to clean water and medicine, refrigeration for their medicine. And so many things that we've seen go wrong, um, you know, in places like Puerto Rico, where it could have been really easy if they would have just had access to clean energy, you know, renewable energy that, that could have saved a lot of lives there. And um, unfortunately, that was just something they didn't have access to. So I think resiliency is really focusing on, you know, our individual where we live, work and play to our cities, to um, how our governments at a local and, and state and national level are prepared to deal with, you know, the way that, that the environment is, is changing, which then causes our daily lives to change.
0: You know, again... You touched down on stuff and, you know, I worked with the National Science Foundation years ago around sort of a resiliency plan before it became mainstream. And some of my work uh, went to Oshpod and the state of Hawaii and and places like that, where we looked at causes for, uh, you know, buildings or facilities or, or organizations to fail. And, you know, we had hurricanes, we had floods, we had, you know, things like tornadoes and fires in there. And, and in reality if you you know you can implement these plans and and finally we're starting to see governments realize that and i've shared this point on build for impact in the past with other guests that now in the country of canada it's written into the code that the designers of a facility have to basically articulate formally a resiliency plan for the facility how it's going to stand how it's going to function what its intended life span is and and to really step away from first costs to look at uh making sure that that facility can be a benefit to its owners and society uh, over the years. And and I don't want to get political on it. I think the the reality of it is is that every time you get caught up in a in a first cost argument, you fail. You know, you you'll never long-term succeed if you get caught up in a first cost argument. Um and and I'm really glad that you you touched down on some of that stuff. And one of the last things that you, you know you shared um, from your experiences was the fact that equity is involved in resiliency. You don't have resiliency without equity. And you shared that your experiences in Africa and uh, your your observations in Australia and other places how how essential that really is. And and I'm glad that you touched down on our next pillar, which is material transparency and you know and in that regard i think that one of the things that i've worked on uh over the last short term and uh got accepted um in in you know published july 10th was uh our global green tags uh product health declaration which has a health rate which finally in in you know first type of certification of its kind that really uh articulates how beneficial the product is to the end user. You know, uh, you, you mentioned cradle to cradle, you know, we have cradle to gate, gate to implementation, implementation to, uh, you know, retirement, retirement to repurposing. So it reenters a, a cradle to, to make it into another product. And, it, you know, and that pathway is important. And I know that, you know, you're, you're hugely involved as, and I'm trying to be hugely involved with the International Well Building Institute, because of our relationships with, you know, with Rick Fedrizzi and Rachel and and Jason Hartke and Dr. Whitney and you know a, a plethora of staff there, um, can you you know sort of look at your genealogy of of material transparency uh, for our audience and and give us our thoughts on that stuff, Jennifer?
1: Sure. Yeah. You know, having started with materials really with, you know, lead when we first started with lead and and looking into it there, um, I'll be honest, materials was something I avoided for quite a while because um, I felt like it was difficult. I felt like the... the material companies didn't want to provide us the MSDS sheets or, you know, the right information we needed to be able to verify because they were afraid that if they provided what was in their products, that quite frankly, they wouldn't get spec'd on the projects anymore because we would find out that they were toxic. And so, you know, I have to applaud the USGBC and LEED and everything that it's done to, to drive that industry and really, um, you know, help move materials along, uh, along with what you all are doing at Green Tags and, um, I think with IWBI, what I really love with the well-building standard is that um, they've taken it even a step further, really, because whereas LEED is, is majority focused on how healthy the building is for the planet, well is focused on how healthy the building is for the people. And so when they released Well V2 into pilot, and now that it's been released in its final format of Well V2, they created an entire concept out of the 10 concepts focused on materials, because when you look at human health, materials really do have such a huge impact, you know, everything from the furniture to the paint to everything that really goes inside your space. And another thing that lead did really well was we started creating these airtight, energy-efficient buildings so that we wouldn't be losing energy out the crevices. But the problem with that was we were then trapping all of these volatile organic You know, the VOCs into into our spaces that are really bad for you. It's like that new car smell everybody loves, except for actually that's toxic, and you really don't want to smell that smell. So I think um, looking at how far the industry has come in design, build, and how far. you know, I live in California, so I really have the benefit of having codes like Cal Green and Title 24 that really force us to pay attention to some of our materials and to VOCs and our insulation and um, some of these things that just really have such an impact on health and wellness. But I would say, um, you know, still working as a sustainability you know, consultant that works globally with portfolios. um I'm surprised by how few of our clients still focus on the materials concepts. Now, the the um the caveat to that is we also have numerous um furniture manufacturers and um Uh, Retailers, And so they're actually really great. They excel at the uh, material side of things. So it's really interesting to see how there's certain materials and groups, such as the furniture manufacturers, who understood their impact right away, jumped on board, and they're really able to support us when we're looking for, you know, furniture that we can utilize that's going to be healthy for the people and planet. Whereas there are other, you know, and I think the same goes for our paints, our adhesives, things like that, that, you know, we've really known since the early renditions of V, um, too, even earlier for for lead that you know these VOCs were so important, um, but I think we're starting to realize more of the materials, um, even what's in our water, right? So thinking even even past just the materials in in the space, but what the materials going into our bodies, such as water, I think we're starting to understand, and IWBI has done a great job of. Of bringing all these, um, you know, global medical, scientific, and built environment experts together and using that confluence to really highlight where we need to focus most, um, to, to impact human health. And I think materials in our spaces, you know, and it even goes down to the clothes we wear, right? Or even the makeup that women or, and some men put on their faces, right? Um, so much of that is toxic as well. We, we put all these products on our children and our babies, but, um, people often don't pay attention to what's in that. And so holistically, I think we just need to start really holding companies um, accountable for the products and the materials they're putting out there to ensure that they're safe for the people and the planet.
0: I could not agree more. And actually, one of the things that I, I've got to give huge, huge applause to uh, the Wealth uh, Building Institute for is they got the idea, and, and Nathan Stodla, their their VP of Standard Development, is really awesome to work with. They got the idea that this airtight, energy-efficient building could be a detriment, but didn't have to be. And they also got the idea that you should separate the heating and cooling function of the building from the air circulation function of the building. You know, one of my most successful projects was with a casino where we did energy recovery ventilation. Uh, You know, so they had a way to exhaust smoke in, in nasty interior environment um and recharge with fresh air that they recovered between sixty five and seventy percent of the energy on. Their their energy bills dropped so drastically as a result and their air quality, you know, jumped as a result. So, you know, those were things that we were able to do and impact uh very positively. I really like uh the fact that within well um in, in you know, I guess we'll transition into the, the the last pillar and it's wellness because we're focusing on that uh, somewhat. But I really like the fact that we do, you know, uh, performance testing and evaluation within well as part of the standard. We do building commissioning within within LEED, uh, you know, and that's basically to, to ensure that the operable systems function the way they were intended to, to meet the owner's project requirements. But I'm really thrilled that now that we have well we can add to that owners project requirements that articulate well attributes that we want to see in buildings and and you know we're seeing that that you know I made that argument earlier about the you know don't don't get caught up in first costs we're seeing that when we do investments on wellness that we see the the health of the occupants of the buildings goes up and their productivity goes up to such an extent that the ROIs on, you know, making that difference to make the the, the place not only sustainable and resource efficient, but well, uh, improves their bottom line, you know, and, and I know you're doing that in a portfolio manager. So uh, I'm going to hand the floor back to you on wellness, Jennifer.
1: Sure, and I think um, ROI is a great place to talk about because with wellness, um, people often lack an understanding, and I think that that's where we, you know, when we first started working with Well in the beginning, what we didn't understand was we were trying to compare the ROI of health and wellness in the built environment to the way we did it with Lead. Where is that savings? And quite frankly, you're not going to find, you know, a, a savings there. The return on investment really is investing on the people, and so when you help people to look at their budget and they realize they spend 90% of their annual budget. A company does on the people versus one percent usually on energy and about nine percent on you know their lease or or their rents. Um, you realize that if you could impact that 90% the people by just a few percent, um, your return on investment could just be astronomical. And so what I love about the well-building standard is we don't even know what those numbers look like for a lot of reasons. First, because people aren't typically measuring where they're at. What is the current productivity of your people? Most people haven't done any research or study into that, um, which now that is being done, which is great. Um, I think also, um, on on that side is you know you could put in great air and you could put in great lighting but one plus one doesn't equal two in that health outcome that could be one plus one equals 50 on the return investment you get of adding those two together so Um, What I love about WELL is, you know, in most uh, health and wellness uh, benefits plans that organizations or companies have, maybe 20 to 40% of their employees or or participants will actually participate in their health and wellness program, whereas when you have a WELL-certified project, 100% 100% of people are participating in that health and wellness because you're providing them the right air, the right light, access to the right water. All of these things, whether they choose it or not, it's available to them and they're utilizing it. So even if they don't choose to do some of the extra benefits that might be there, like a gym or or extra things um, in place, policy-wise, they're still actively benefiting from a lot of the other systems and choices and policies and procedures that are in place. And so. I think as, you know, we look at holistic sustainability, we've done a great job in the last 20 years, thanks to USGBC and LEED, of understanding that, you know, we really need to make sure our buildings aren't um, ruining the environment, but rather being, you know, a benefit to us. Um, but I think in the last, you know, five to 10 years, that started to also now, um, people are starting to realize that the places where we live, work and play matter. Um, to our human health. And I think Covid sped that up um, exponentially, you know, so when Covid started, people started looking at how are we going to go back into these spaces and what's that going to look like, and what are the safest options? And I think the International well Building Institute did a really fantastic job of pivoting back in March and really, you know, examining well V2, making sure it was responsible to be released in the the new normal that, that we'll come back to post-COVID. And they set up their global task force of uh, almost 600 people making up, you know, uh, medical practitioners, scientists, um, doctors, nurses, you know, the built environment experts, both you and I were on that task force as well. And um, out of that came the health safety rating. And I've been really, really impressed with how Agile... IWBI has been and their ability to really respond to market demand of wanting some kind of a rating or certification to really let people know that their buildings are, you know, healthy and safe and have chosen the right operations and policies and procedures um, to bring people into them as safely as possible. And so, It's been really fun, you know, as much as it's been horrible to have to um, watch the world go through this pandemic, it's been really amazing to watch all the people who are now starting to work with the well-building standard and well-portfolio and using the health safety rating as a way to message both their employees and or clients or customers or or patients or whatever that may be, um, students that, you know, the places that you're coming into, um, you know, they've done some work, They've, they've submitted this to a third party, and it's been um, audited and verified to ensure that, you know, they're doing what they've said that will actually make a difference. And so I think when it comes to health and wellness, um, especially in the built environment, people are really understanding how important it is. And um, one of the things that I always find fascinating is when you go to the doctor's office, um, they always ask you about, you know, your mother and your father and your grandmother and grandfather's illnesses and DNA and our DNA really makes up, you know, maybe 10% of, um, the likelihood of, of what our, our, um, health is going to be. Whereas our, um, social, settings our environment that makes up you know over 50 percent of what's going to really um contribute to our health and wellness so i I would love to see doctors start asking those questions you know how's your home life what does your environment look like you know what's your air quality and and they don't and they're they're really missing a huge opportunity and the largest contributor to our health and wellness and so i think you know as a wellness consultant and and um really taking on that responsibility of, of human health in the built environment. Um, because now that we know, we can't unknow um, the effects, you know, that it has on people. And that with that comes the, the responsibility to do something about it.
0: Jennifer, thank you. You know, you articulated so well uh, what we do. So, you know, we knew back at the beginning of, of the COVID pandemic, things that you shouldn't do we haven't been scolding people about it we've been trying to share our knowledge educate inform and, and hopefully get them to emulate the the best practices that that we put into place and the well health safety rating is is huge uh in, in that regard to to try to be a uh, a caretaker for people you know obviously uh any organization 90% of their uh, monies are spent on their, on their staff, you know, so that's a monstrous ROI opportunity that I'm going to return to. But you also referenced the fact that as we know, 50% of the impact of your health comes from your daily environment. And, you know, what was really interesting and I'm going to share this, uh, I can't remember if I've shared this in dialogue with you before or not, but we did a project where we were looking at doing a, um, energy audit, energy improvement. And we came up with four measures uh, that we intended to do. Two were based on lighting and two were based on, on air quality. And, uh, you know, at the end, all of these measures were intended to actually save energy, which they did. But the secondary outcome from these four uh, energy efficiency measures, EEMs, as we'd say in, in ASHRAE, uh was that we saw a $16,000 improvement in the productivity of the staff in the in the facility once I came into play the ROI on those improvements was down into the months you know instead of the approximately five years it would have been if it were just looking at the at the resource you know consumption difference and and paid from savings so you know again I, I'm going off on the on my soapbox do not focus on first costs you know, that might be your detriment. Look at a bigger picture, look at a longer term picture and look at one that that does better for the uh, occupants and the planet.
1: Absolutely. Agreed. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
0: I I can't tell you how time flies when we get into these dialogues on Build for Impact. And, uh, you know, I want to go on record as inviting you back to Actually, have one where we can talk about the impacts of the Well Health Safety Rating, uh, and maybe we'll do a panel discussion. You, myself, and I'll I'll uh, get you to recommend a couple of people, and we'll get three, four, five people at the same time, and we'll maybe hit some of those issues on why this is so important, and and why you shouldn't ignore it, and why you should look to aspire to do it, and what that's going to do for you. Um, You know, visiting uh, things like uh, shopping malls or, you know, uh, the baseball stadium or, you know, other facilities, a hospitality facility that can easily get this this uh, well health safety rating Um, and, and how that's going to, you know, hopefully positively impact operations and maintenance from this point in time forward.
1: Yeah, I would love that. That sounds great. That sounds a lot of fun. <laughs> I'm in.
0: Okay, that's great. So, uh, in in uh, um I want to thank you again for showing up on Build for Impact to our audience, uh, our listening audience. Please continue to give us your feedback on uh, our sessions, what you'd like to see in the future, any questions that you may have. And uh, I'm going to turn it back to you for uh, any closing comments, Jennifer. Sure.
1: Yeah, wow, I didn't think about what I wanted to leave you with. <laughs> so, um <laughs> Yeah. I mean, you know, I I think in these uncertain times right now, really um, what I would want to leave people with is just to look at what you can be doing, you know, whether it's in your own home, within your own companies, but really to support one another. Um, I think a lot of people are going through a lot right now. So let's not make each other wrong, but much like we do with the well-building standard, let's show people, you know, in the health safety rating is, let's really help people understand the difference they can make and and the impact um, that they can have to help, um, you know, keep us from moving to a new normal where we see more pandemics, where we see more fires and natural disasters. So really just making informed choices from, you know, the products you buy daily, to who you give your money to and support, to ensure that um, you know we're really moving this country and this planet in in a way that's going to be sustainable, both for you know generations now and generations to come.
0: So I'll follow up on that uh, in you know as a uh, as a closing comment. Try to be more humane to your friends, family, uh, community, and the planet. Um, emulate what you see that's good, and and focus on the positive. Uh, and that way you you too can make a really monstrous uh, impact. Thank you again for joining us today and look forward to sharing programs with you in the future. Thanks. Bye-bye.